of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amin. Today is the second Sunday of the Coptic month of Hatur. Last week we read about the parable of the sower from the Gospel of St. Luke, and this morning we read about the parable of the sower from the Gospel of St. Matthew. The Church places in these two weeks the same parable of the sower because it is the time in, back in, the, in, in Egypt where they were beginning to farm and for the harvest of, of the wheat. Um, so the church connects the readings of the, the teachings of our Lord with the life of the people. Um, so last week we, we, we heard about the, the parable, as I mentioned, from St. Luke, and this morning we're hearing about the same parable from the Gospel of St. Matthew. And it's good for us um, to begin with what the Lord says at the very end of the Gospel today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is always the invitation whenever the gospel is preached, whenever the gospel is read to us, whenever we open up our Bibles is to pray, ask the Lord to give us the spiritual ears and the spiritual sight to hear and see what he wants to give us. Um, In the context of the parables, we know that oftentimes the Lord begins his parables by speaking about the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is like, and then he speaks a parable. So ultimately, we know that the parables are teaching us something about the kingdom of God. Now, at the time that these parables were preached, at the time that the Lord spoke these words, we can put ourselves in the place of those people who were listening to the disciples who were following the Lord and who had committed themselves to him. And many of them were probably wondering, what's going to come of all of this? It's nice. The Lord is saying very beautiful things in his teachings. He's healing people performing miracles, but what about Israel? What about the Roman occupation? What about the fulfillment of an earthly prosperity that they were anticipating and expecting? How is is this going to bring about that end result? And many were discouraged. Many, they followed the Lord eager in the beginning because they thought, okay, he's just warming up and he's going to get to the good stuff in which he will overthrow the Roman Empire and free us and restore the Davidic kingdom on earth. And it didn't happen. And of course, they had no foresight yet about the cross. They didn't understand. Even Jesus spoke to them about the cross. Unless you carry the, your cross, you cannot be a disciple of mine. And they, and they were asking, what, what cross are you talking about? We haven't The only cross we know of is how the Romans execute the worst criminals. He hadn't been crucified yet to be able to give them a meaning of his own cross. So we can imagine that this was a time in which they were very much maybe discouraged at times, discontented at times. And so what Jesus is saying in the parable is something very important to them and to to all of us. He's saying that the kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is sown in a very simple and humble and insignificant way, like seed thrown on the ground. And what will God do with this very simple, humble manner of spreading the the word, spreading the news of his salvation, is the harvest will be the kingdom of God. Now, you can't possibly imagine in what our Lord is saying that this will bring about a kingdom, But that's exactly the point that the Lord wants to make, is that it is the incarnation which seems so insignificant. Jesus, a man born in Nazareth, in Bethlehem, 
raised in Nazareth, uh, a, a humble carpenter, a poor man, a place he has no place to lay his head, he tells his disciples. Everything about the incarnation goes against the idea of a king in a kingdom. And yet it is this very sort of simple, very human, insignificant way that the kingdom will grow. And on the contrary, he will tell us that the kingdoms of the earth, the emperors, the kings, the empires, all of the great political structures, all of the the rich and the famous, all of them will pass away. All of them will, will go into oblivion. But the kingdom will continue to grow 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's the point of the parables of the, of the seeds, is that the kingdom is sort of obscure. And he reminds us that in, in understanding this parable, that this is the, the, the manner of our way of life, that the, the very simple, humble things that we do, our prayers, our good deeds, our attendance at church, our partaking in the sacraments, our service to one another in our local communities, that this very humble, simple manner of life is producing a kingdom. It's producing a kingdom that will outlast the kingdoms of the earth. And it will be of such power and glory that it will put to shame the power and the glory of all that belongs to the world. So Jesus said, a sower went out. Who is the sower? It's himself. He went out to sow a kingdom, to plant a kingdom. The seed is his word, but he is the word. He is the logos. And so he plants himself in the world. He plants himself in the heart of every person who will receive him. And for a farmer who worked in the time of Galilee in those days, a 30-fold harvest was a very good harvest, was a plentiful harvest. A 60-fold harvest was an unusually abundant harvest for the year. It was something out of the ordinary. It was something that was considered a tremendous blessing from God. But a hundredfold harvest was unheard of. It was a miracle. It doesn't come about in everyday life. So Jesus wants to say that the kingdom will not only produce a 30-fold and a 60-fold, but even that which is impossible. It will be the harvest of God. It's like what Jesus said to the young rich ruler. You know the story of the young rich ruler. He came and he was very sorrowful because Jesus said, if you want to follow me, go and sell all that you have and take up your cross and be my disciple and follow me. And then the man went away sorrowful and Jesus turned to the people and he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So he presents almost this impossibility. Well, then who can enter the kingdom of God? What will, who will make up the kingdom of God if, you, if it seems that it's impossible to enter with such restrictions? And they asked, they said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what? The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. The kingdom which seems impossible in the world today the kingdom which seems impossible in your life when you look at yourself and you look at yourself in the mirror and you look at your, yourself on the inside and you reflect on all of your weaknesses and your, and your struggles. He's saying that which is impossible with you is possible with God. 
and it will be not just a 30-fold or a 60-fold, but even a 100-fold harvest. So God comes into the world in order to sow his kingdom, to sow himself into the hearts of people. And he uses this uh, parable as an expression of those who will be willing to receive him, to simply trust in his word. That's what he asks of the disciples when he, when he says these parables and to the people. You think, just wait and see. Wait and see how the harvest will be manifest. Right? In the prologue of St. John's Gospel, he says, he came to his own, right? The sower went out. He came to his own, and his own, what, received him not. But as many as received him, as many uh, was the fertile ground in which the seed was able to penetrate, he said, to them he gave the power to become sons of God or to be the kingdom of God. And so Christ is not just saying a good word, an inspiring word. He's talking about the very implantation of his life in each one of us. So that like St. Paul, we could say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ what, who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live for, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. St. Paul came to this beautiful awareness that Christ is not one among us, but he is planting himself in us to become us, for us to become him. And so we know that the seed is also spoken of as the seed which must be buried under the earth. In order for it to produce fruit, it must die under the earth. It must be buried under the earth. So the seed which he sows in us is not just a seed of life and promise and hope, which it is, but it is first and foremost a seed of death. It is his death that he sows in us. It is, it is the very death that when we were baptized, we were baptized what, into his death, and we came out of the waters baptized in his resurrection. So each one of us bears within us the death of Christ so that the, man, so that the resurrection of Christ may be, might be manifest in us. So the way to the kingdom, as one saint said, is Mount Calvary, Golgotha, the cross. But the end, the destination is Mount Tabor, the glorification, the glory, the beautiful light of Tabor, the transfigured light. And so St. Paul will say to the communities that he writes to, for example, the Corinthians, and he will say, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The only way the kingdom of God will be manifest, the harvest will produce its beautiful fruit a hundredfold, is first by manifesting death in each one of us. What is this death? It's a death to our self-will, which rebels against the will of God. It's a death to our selfish desires, which turn us away from the goodness of God. It's death to our self-love, which, which violates the law of love and charity towards God and towards our neighbor. It's, it's dying to everything that is contrary to the will and love and goodness of God and to our neighbor. All that must be put to death in order for the harvest to be manifest. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, even a hundredfold, a miraculous harvest. And so, in some sense then, the kingdom is not just something that we receive 
but it's also something that we participate in giving to others. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, what I completed for me. Let me know you're awake. I what? As the Father sent me, so I send you. As the sower was one who was sent out, so likewise every Christian is one who is sent out to sow seed, to throw seed everywhere. Everywhere. By the wayside, on the rocky soil, on the soil that has thorns, and on the soil that, that can produce fruit immediately. To, to throw the seed everywhere, as Christ did. That's why St. Paul says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset. Have the same goal and vision of Christ. He was a sower in the world. He sowed his kingdom. He was one who was always sowing goodness and the truth about God. And St. Paul says, I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So the measure by which we sow in the world and in other people's lives will be also the measure in which we reap the harvest in eternity. So we have to have the heart of the sower. We have to have the mind of the sower. We have to have that spiritual nobility that the gospel speaks about. The gospel speaks about the good ground, the good ground as the, the ground in which is received with a noble and good heart, keeps it, the, the, the seed, and bears fruit with patience. Spiritual nobility, grandeur, majesty, beauty, goodness. So what is the heart of the sower? We can just look at some attributes of the, of the heart of the sower and see how we have to live these attributes in our own life. The first thing that obviously we see is that the sower is very generous, right? We, 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 we can even imagine the picture of, of the sower who is running through the fields, throwing his seed everywhere, just throwing them everywhere indiscriminately. He's very generous. He's, there's a certain unlimitedness to his sowing. And in the same way, each one of us must have that generosity. You will say, well, shouldn't I only sow where it will be received and returned back to me? Of course not. This is not the mind of Christ. Christ sowed everywhere, and the majority did not receive him, did not accept him, did not um, bear the fruit initially. But he, keeps, he kept sowing. So this generosity is something that it doesn't look at what I receive in return. I'm just generous. Indiscriminate. The sower is indiscriminate. He just throws the seed everywhere. He's not, he's not cautious to make sure that he only throws it on the ground in which he knows it might bear fruit, but he gives every possible person, which represents the various grounds, an opportunity. Don't just be good to those who are good to you or you think might be good to you in return, but throw your seed indiscriminately, even to our so-called enemies. Be good. The sower is very hopeful. We know that those who are engaged in, in, in trades like um, sowing and fishing, that they are always very hopeful. They always, any, well, golfers are like that in the beginning too, but then they get discouraged very quickly. But 
but specifically people who are involved in, 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 in tilling the ground and, and you know, going out to sea for days at a time, they are so hopeful for the catch, for the harvest, even to the last minute. You know, when you go with, out with people who love deep sea fishing, you can spend 10 hours and catch nothing, and you, you say, we have five minutes left, and the captain's saying, we're going to get something in these five minutes. These five minutes, we're going to... To the last moment, there's hope. And likewise, each one of us should never lose sight of the virtue of hope, no matter how discouraged, discouraging the circumstances are around us and even within ourselves. The sower is very patient, he has a great long-suffering attitude towards his trade because we know that sowing and waiting for the harvest is a painstakingly slow process. It doesn't give immediate results. It doesn't give immediate gratification. And how, how much we are in need of this patience in our lives to bear fruit in our lives, spiritual fruits, to, to see the spiritual fruit of our service, to see the, the spiritual fruit of the church from this generation to the next, to see all of the strivings of, of our prayers and readings to bear fruit in, in a life of holiness. The sower is painstakingly patient and long-suffering. The sower also has a great eagerness and yearning. How much he desires that hundredfold harvest. Perhaps this year will be the year in which the harvest will be a hundredfold, not just thirtyfold. And there is this eagerness, this longing, this yearning. And in the same way, the Christian is always hungry and thirsty for the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The, the, the sower is very humble. We know that those who sow and those who fish, they know that so much depends on factors that are apart from themselves. The rain, the sun, the temperature, the climate, the quality of the soil, the quality of the seed. There are so many things that are outside of their own expertise, which humbles them, and they know that they are sort of at the mercy of all of these other factors. And this is for us like the life of grace. As Christians, we realize that grace is what gives growth and gives strength and power to all of our striving. And it humbles us to realize that we are so impotent and insignificant to accomplish anything on our own. The Lord Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. The sower lacks superficiality. He doesn't just jump from one occupation to another. He doesn't just go to a job and say, after a year, I'm bored with this job. He is dedicated his whole life to this one thing. He studies it. He reviews it. He reads about it. He listens to others about it. There's nothing superficial about his, about his dedication to his trade. There's a depth. There's a, there's, a, there's a growing knowledge. And likewise, the Christian can never lack superficiality in order to achieve the kingdom of God. There must be a, sor a sort of comprehensive attitude towards our spiritual lives. We cannot just be off and on. We cannot just go to church one week and skip one week. We cannot just go to confession once and wait a year. We have to be serious about the kingdom of God. 
The sower, the fisherman, is very docile, means he's, he's teachable, he listens, he's willing to change. St. Pachomius once was sitting and weaving baskets, which was the work of the monks in the early centuries. And a young child came in, and he didn't know that it was St. Pachomius. St. Pachomius was the father of 12,000 monks. 12,000 monks. And St. Theodore that we mentioned in the, in the liturgy was his disciple. So St. Pachomius is the spiritual father of St. Theodore. And this child comes in and he sees St. Pachomius weaving baskets, and he sort of rebukes him and he says, no, 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 Father, you're doing it all wrong. Our father Theodore taught us to do it this way. Now, Pachomius could have said, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am to Theodore? And do you know who I am to all these 12,000 monks? But St. Pachomius said, yes, 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 please come, show me, show me. And he learned from the child how to weave in a better way, and he was so excited, willing to learn, willing to change, even from a child. Of course, the sower is very grateful when the harvest comes about, there is a great gratitude, thanksgiving that is offered. The Christian likewise has to cultivate this attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving. The sower is sacrificial. The fisherman gets up at three in the morning in order to begin to clean the boat, mend the nets. He might be out at sea for 15 hours the sower is from, from sunrise until sunset. He gives his whole life to it. He's willing to die for it. The Christian, likewise, has to be sacrificial. He can't easily be exhausted. He can't say, I'm a little bit tired today. I won't go to church. I won't say my prayers. I won't read my Bible. I won't. But he must push himself as if life and death depends on it. It is in those times when, when we, we think we have no energy, we have no, nothing left in us, when we say, Lord, I can't do it, but I will try. That's when the grace of God rushes in and lifts us up and offers us sometimes the best moments of prayer and reading and liturgy. Father Zacharias always told this story of a, of a, of a friend of his who was a monk who was asked to go into the city of Athens once to to cover for a church. The monk was not used to a large congregation. He prayed the liturgy and people came to him with all their problems and they wanted to confess. And six, seven hours of exhausting service that he wasn't used to. Finally, he gets back to his cell at night and he looks at his icons at night and he says, Lord, forgive me, I'm dead, I cannot pray. And he just starts pacing back and forth and he says, forgive me, Lord, I'm dead, I cannot pray. And he kept pacing, and what was he doing? He was praying. And, it, and then the grace of God rushed in, and he said it was the most beautiful night of prayer that he ever had. So this is what we do. Lord, I cannot make it to liturgy. I'm dead. And then get in the car and drive to liturgy. So this is the spiritual nobility. I'll just end with, I like sometimes to introduce a new saint to, 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 to you, this is a saint that I just learned about myself even just a few months ago, and I was very, very much touched by his life. Part of it, of course, is because I found that he was connected to the life of St. Pope Carolus VI. His name is Abuna Azir El Comos Arsenius, Father Azir Arsenius. Also, he's known as Father Azir El Farshuti. Actually, we have one of our servants, Delia. I won't embarrass you, but uh, she met him, and she can testify 
to the great sanctity of the saint um, who lived in Upper Egypt in the area of Naga Hamadi in Inna in a city called Al Farshut. Is that right? Al Farshut? So that's why they call him Abu Nazir Al Farshuti. He was ordained in 1949 as a priest, a married priest. He had children. And, uh, but from 1950, uh, he often visited Father Mina, the solitary, Pope Carlos VI, when he was in the Tahuna in the windmill, and he spent at times six months with him. So you can imagine what he took from Father Mina, from Pope Carlos during those times. And he was known as a, in, his, in, his, uh, in his life as a man of prayer. People testified that he prayed 20 hours a day. And it's not an exaggeration. They saw him from early, from, from the liturgy to all the way till late into the night and early into the morning with constant prayers, whether it was the prayers of the, the services of the church, the prayers in the homes of the people, his personal prayers in which he prayed all of the hours of the Igbeya, and the midnight prayers, and the midnight praises, only sleeping four hours a day. In fact, one time he was praying, people, often many of the stories about him is that people would come visit him in his home, in his very humble home, and they would enter into his room and he would be praying. And he would be so immersed in prayer that he wouldn't know that people were in his room waiting for one hour, two hours until he finished his prayer and turned around and found that there was a group of people there waiting for him. One time there was a, a, an earthquake in his house and the building was cracking. And he was in his house praying and everybody was crying out to him to come out of his house, trying to save him. And as if he was totally deaf, he didn't hear them. And after the, the earthquake finished, and after some time when they, he didn't respond, they went to go check on him, and they found him in prayer, unmoved. He had no idea what, what was happening in the world around him. Even in, uh, in, his, in the end of his life, he had many, many illnesses. His legs had all kinds of problems to the point that they were bruised and blackened and, and, and decomposing and had to be, the, the doctors wanted to cut off his legs to amputate his legs, but he refused. And even when he was in this condition in the, the last day of his life, he was still praying until four in the morning. And then he went and prayed liturgy. And then he prayed a six-hour liturgy that day. And then he was praying all night, again, with resting just for a couple of hours before he departed, eight o'clock the next day. So, these great saints that many of us, we don't even know about. I just heard of him recently. He was gifted with many, many, not, uh, not just as a man of prayer, but he was gifted with many other talents. He was known to be among the Sawah, the, the anchorites, those who traveled in spirit to other places. He had the gift of healing, prophecy. Many, many beautiful things about people around us. Who are these people? Who are they? Why are they important to us? Is this not the hundredfold harvest? Are these not the people whose secret and hidden and insignificant lives and poor and humble lives, are they not the ones who are spreading the, the, the harvest of the kingdom of God? Is this not the love, the love that can stand for 20 hours of prayer and communion with Christ? Is this not the love that represents a hundredfold harvest? I know I don't even have a five-fold harvest in my life. 
And maybe you're wondering the same thing about your life. But that's why we look to these saints. They judge us, not in a bad way. They don't judge us in the sense that they... they, they but they're a mirror. In that through them, we judge ourselves. Through them, we see what true love looks like. Through them, we see what does it mean when the seed that's buried under the ground produces 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. What does it look like? Look to the icons. Look to the images of the holy people around you who are even alive today the people who are walking about insignificantly in this world, who have no name, who have no power, who have no glory, but they say their prayers, they fast, they go to church, they serve one another, they forgive one another, they love one another. That's the kingdom of God. One day we will see how that insignificant seed is going to produce an eternal glory and majesty that will put to shame everything that we thought was wonderful and great and beautiful on the earth. That's the message of the sower. May our Lord Jesus Christ give us the grace to bear fruit in our lives 30-fold, 60-fold, and even by his miraculous power, a hundredfold. To him be all glory now and ever into the age of ages. I mean. Amen.